This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of Now and Not Yet. Pressing in when you're waiting, wanting, and restless for more. Written and narrated by best-selling author Ruth Cho Simons and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Welcome to The Cartographers, a podcast to help Christian leaders map a changing cultural landscape in the 21st century. Join us, Bryce and Ashley Hales, pastor and PhD, as we discuss with our guests how to cultivate fruitful and resilient lives in communities. Listen in. All right. It's really enjoyable to have David Zoll here on the podcast. He is the author most recently of the book called Low Anthropology, The Unlikely Key to a Gracious View of Others and Yourself. So I'm joined here with Bryce Hales, and we're excited to welcome you on to the show, David. Thank you so much for having me. This is the thrill. You are welcome. So, you know, as we think about Low anthropology, that's like, you know, a $4 word right there in your title. And so the idea maybe might not be familiar to most people unless they've already read your book. And anthropology refers to what we believe about human nature. And so you start out by suggesting that most of us have by default kind of this high anthropology, by which you really mean that we have a high view of what human beings are capable of and a high view of what we should expect from each other. But then you're talking about a low anthropology. And so you're encouraging us to have a much more realistic view of ourselves and others. And so you say that somewhat ironically, a low anthropology is actually what we need to live with hope and freedom and understanding. Can you talk us through a little bit about that shift Oh, sure. Well, um, yeah, I, I really do think that everyone has some kind of view of human nature that they're that they're uh, living out of. Um, and it may not be like conscious or it may be like pieced together or something. But I, I, I think that, yeah, I always say like when people say I'm only human, they, there's something they mean by that. And sort of what we think human beings are good at and capable of or incapable of, like it just can't help but... Um, create expectations of ourselves, um, but really of other people and, you know, things like in our jobs and um, with our children and, uh, you know, in our politics and, of course, in our spiritual lives. So, yeah, what I've found to be true is, or what the book is trying to contend is that having an overly optimistic view of human nature that says, like, uh, the only limits I have are the ones I put on myself, that kind of idea, um, which is something we sort of like imbibe with mother's milk in this country. I think that it sounds great. Like we sound like we're trying to, uh, you know, set people up for never feeling badly about themselves. But as a result, um, it creates a whole lot of anxiety, like perfectionism and anxiety about the slightest shortcoming or crack in the facade. Um, whereas like a, a much more, so I would just call it sober view of human nature of low anthropology, which is, um, you know, I, I quote Anne Lamott to give my sort of the, the great patron saint of low anthropology. And she says, she says that everybody is uh, screwed up, uh, uh, afraid, clingy, 
and scared. So uh, try not to. Um, they're much more like you than you would care think uh, you would care to believe, even those who look like they have it more or less together. So try not to compare your insides too much with their outsides. That to me is a low anthropology and just sort of a sense of which immediately you feel when I when I when I read Lamont's words to people. I just watch them laugh. I watch them relax. I watch them say, uh-huh, especially the older, the older folks. And they uh that sense of like um you know, walking around feeling terribly about yourself is actually uh, usually linked to feeling like you're the only person who's struggling or the only one who uh, has problems or the only one making it up as they go along. When in fact, low anthropology says, well, basically there are no grownups. Everyone is kind of piecing this together. And it's remarkable how well things and how much beauty there is in the world, given what you were like what I'm like and the ties that bind us together. Like I have a sudden like people a lot more when I find out that they struggle or um, suffer in in a similar way. And I find I resent them if I think that they're just completely impervious to life's slings and arrows. Um, And that's my own limitation coming out. But that's sort of, does that shed a little light? I've used the line in, uh, I'm a pastor, so I've used this in sermons on more than one occasion, um, that my favorite headline ever from The Onion is, today is the day that they all find out you're faking it. (laughs) And it's amazing because everybody relates with that. And, you know, we tend to think everybody else has got it together and I'm just flying by the seat of my pants and holding things together. (laughs) No imposter syndrome. Isn't that kind of universal, actually, if you, when you get to know people? You know, as we think about that reality, you know, there's a sense in which it has a really practical way in which that we can move about in the world, you know, maybe less self-focused, less perfectionistic, less self-preoccupied. Um, but how does that square with, I think it was C.S. Lewis, right, who talked about, like, if we could actually see human beings for what they actually truly really are, we would, you know, fall down and worship them, right? Like like an angel, something like that. I vaguely remember reading decades ago. But, you know, the sense that, you know, that we've been made a little lower than the angels. Um, so how do we square uh, those two realities. There's a sense in which we have denigrated the image of God so much so that we hurt and malign the image of God. So how does the low anthropology square with this fact that we're actually, uh, yeah, made in God's image? Yeah. Uh, well, that's, that's a, the great question. I think I, 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 <laughs> yeah. I was certainly, I was, let me just say, there's a little bit of a contextual element to this and that I was certainly brought up in a more secular f- for, although it was a Christian home, but I was, I was brought up in schools that sort of told me that I was uh, no less than the angels, you know, that I was sort of like, there was nothing wrong with me. If someone had an issue, it was their problem. Like I'm kind of God's gift. And like that fuels a sort of entitlement that's the common word for it today. It also it fuels a kind of neurosis and like um, a, there's almost like a morbid sense of my own importance. Um, and so I didn't think I was in danger of thinking uh, of having that. Like what I needed as a person who was growing up in that context was some sense of actually it's okay to have problems. It's okay. I mean, not that the problems themselves are okay, but you are not the only one. And um, there is, everyone's got something there, you know, 
some sort of imposter syndrome that they're grappling with. I think if you're someone who has like heard nothing but no or some kind of truly negative judgment from the time you're a baby, um, and that that does happen. It happens under religious auspices, I think, sometimes. But then to hear actually you're creating an image of God and that um, you have been given all sorts of unique strengths and you're fearfully and wonderfully made and you do have something positive to contribute. I think that that's a very worthy and important thing. Uh, the 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 elements that I was concerned in this book with um, were two things really. The f- culturally was burnout, which is this sense that we're capable of more than we're actually capable of, um, and that everyone is sort of living a life that demands too much from them, whether that be economically or relationally or spiritually. And so there's an overestimation of human potential. And the other thing being loneliness, um, which was just sort of encroaching on all sides. And I, I often think that loneliness has something to do with an inability or an intolerance of any kind of weakness or, um, you know, sin, frankly, because no one, no one actually, we, we can demonstrate our virtues before other people and our, even our imago dei-ness in front of other people. And people can, can see that and we might feel respected and valued, but I don't think people... Those aren't the wedding toasts, you know, that your best friends will give. They all have to do with uh, the things about you that you've tried to hide, but that you feel known by. And uh, again, it's not always neutral. It's not always equivalent. But um, I don't. I'm not trying to, in any sense, like diminish the imago dei uh, factor. Though biblically, I also read that, and I sometimes think that's usually what separates us from the animals. Um, Rather than like some some uh, godlikeness that we we have, and uh, there's a dignity to it, but there's also like there's a whole lot more in the Bible about uh, how you know screwed up and and how misaligned and distorted our desires are, and and yet while we've been given such great gifts, we just have a natural propensity to um, weaponizing them, you know, and like that that so so I'm always a little suspicious of us trying to overemphasize that because it seems like the biblical thrust is actually your tendency is going to want to be to not look at that at the, at, the, at the reality of who you are, which will not always leads you to God. I think it sort of leads you to trust in yourself. So, David, do you think that there, uh, you kind of referenced this a minute ago, actually, but do you think that there's almost like a uniquely American aspect or angle to, to what you're getting at here? Ashley and I um, lived in, um, when we were newly married, went to grad school in the UK and, and it seemed like um, British people would comment that, you know, Americans just have this like, self-confidence that is foreign to, to British, <laughs> British folks. I mean, is there a little bit of that, you know, it's the, I don't know, the, the, the John Wayne kind of <laughs> swagger or something that is in play. Uh, for us, we, we tend to have this kind of uniquely high view of our own uh, capabilities. Well, yeah. I think that there's something culturally specific about it, or at least, it's partially culturally specific. You know, the English have other forms of entitlement with which they struggle, as we all know. You know, you cannot, you cannot exactly, you know, colonize that many people without thinking that you're somehow <laughs> God's gift to humanity. But, 
<laughs> let's face it. But there is, you know, Stephen Fry, the British comedian, once he, he once remarked famously that, you know, how the greatest, largest section in American bookstores self-help. And there's this sense in America that people, that people, the self is endlessly improvable. Whereas in England, there's a, because maybe you're surrounded by the detritus of history that you are, um, and the sort of long defeats that you are, uh, uh, there's something more tragic uh, just at, at, at play that's, and you cannot escape it. So I think there's a little bit, and then you get American exceptionalism in there. You know, you, you go to other countries and how do they perceive Americans? And usually if they have good enough English, they will sort of say entitlement. Like the people that come in, they're really loud. They kind of are brash and they're not really that sensitive to other people's countries. And there's, there is that, Again, but but again, uh, we didn't colonize half of the world you know, in the same way. So I, I want to say, is there something universal? However, the bootstrapping manifest destiny, um, shining city on a hill, doesn't help things for Ram sitting in terms humility wise. <laughs> so one of the things that I've kind of been concerned about um, over the last several years is just that individualism has become the default life script for the average American. You know, David Brooks um, has this kind of great metaphor in in one of his books where he talks about um, commencement addresses where at, at, at college graduation, we give uh, graduates this nicely wrapped box that's empty <laughs> that basically says, uh, you're going to do amazing things and you can do whatever you want. And we know it's going to be amazing. And, and it's paralyzing people. And, uh, and so, David, you write that Christianity makes very little sense in the context of a high anthropology. And, and so I'm curious if you could just unpack that um, a little bit for us. And, and maybe also, I, I'm, I'm kind of wondering as I was reading through your book, um, you know, so, so I'm a Presbyterian, and so uh, a total depravity is kind of our starting place. Like, is low anthropology like a uh, functional total depravity, total depravity in practice? Uh, I would, I, you know, I just, the word total depravity, like, it's it's so easily misunderstood. Right. Like, I just, I, I shy away from it simply. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm not a Presbyterian, but I, I think... Um, Low anthropology is meant to encapsulate a little bit more than simply original sin. It, it includes that. But, to, but low anthropology, from where I'm sitting, also includes the fact that you're simply limited by nature of being a creature, uh, that you're, you, you're limited by time and you're limited by biology, and you're, you're just, there's a set amount of things you can do in a day. And that's not, there's no moral you know, valence to that. It's simply just reality. It's finitude, you know, whatever you want to say. There's no, um, necess- there's no transgression that's always implied in it. There's, there's a value judgment uh, big time uh, in the words total depravity. But it also includes, um, low anthropology also includes the second pillar, what I would call doubleness, which is like conflictedness, which is sort of a, a, a that are, we are also late, limited in our agency, so like knowing what I should do doesn't always give me the ability to do it. Or there's a d- distinction oftentimes between what I want to do and what I, what I know I should do. And that uh, all sorts of, um, and again, there's not necessary, there can be, and there often is a moral dimension to that, but there isn't necessarily, you know, um, 
just to just think about it until it's like sort of procrastination. Uh, I know what I should be doing, but I'm not doing it now. That whether it does that have to do with being good or bad, nothing. It just I'll either get it something done earlier or later. But I am certainly tied in knots when it comes to getting this thing done on time. Uh, and yet, when I know that I should be kind, and I watch myself be unkind to, you know, just speaking for my own children. <laughs> uh, I, I think that there is, there can be a moral dimension to that. So I want to say that like, I, I distinguish low anthropology and then there is, yes, the third pillar of a low anthropology is self-centeredness by which we mean that there, we are, we feel like bad wheel alignment. You, there is a dark side to human nature. And if you don't see that, or you don't understand that you're going to be very frustrated with human beings. And not more than that, you're actually going to actively hate them and you're going to contribute more darkness to the equation if you don't allow for the fact that there's something in there's some glitch in the matrix that has us throwing up errors all the time it's just you know, that it's the the um the the francis buffard's famous the human propensity to f things up you know? <laughs> it's, yeah so i say that but i also i i, uh, I mean I affirm 100%. Like when David Brooks, they would talk about, you know, follow your dreams. And I actually use Steve Jobs as an example. It was funny because the example I use of Steve Jobs from 2005, when he told Stanford graduates, follow your intuitions and your hearts. They somehow know what you want to become. I, I was talking about this in front of a woman in California who graduated from Stanford in 2005. And she said, I was there <laughs> and some of us rolled our eyes at that, uh, but it was exciting, but also it was like 98 degrees and like none of us were thinking about what he was saying. <laughs> but again, there we are, there we are. We're limited by the weather, you know, we're limited by our bodies um, and our comfort. So uh, yeah, I think that that's uh, pushing a kid, uh, a young person inward in a way that is uh, before they've had a chance to really uh, – you know, you, you kind of want to say, go do something and you'll figure out whether you're called to it or not, or you, you, you're passionate about it. Uh, this desire, I mean, I don't know if you guys felt it, but when I was 21, I didn't really know what I was passionate about outside of like, there was a couple of young women that I felt strongly about. And then there was <laughs> some music that I really loved. And right. other than that, yeah. I was yeah. pretty much staring at my you know belly button. I didn't know what was going on. So yeah. 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 So, I mean, but uh, how about this idea that um, Christianity isn't going to make a lot of sense in the context of a high anthropology? I, I think that, um, you know, one of the things that seems like it's sh maybe shifted in the last couple of years is that, you know, maybe there was a previous time where everybody had a sense that like, we should be more moral than we are. We should be better people than we are. And so Christianity kind of provides the moral compass that everybody, whether they're believers or not, assumes. And and somehow that shifted now. And I, I think if I'm um, got my facts straight, you work with college students a bit, right, at UVA. And, um, and so, you know, in that context, it seems like increasingly there's just this sense where, Christianity is like an alternate universe from the one that most uh, college students, let's say, are living in, right? Where you're, okay, you believe these things. Uh, this is the way we think about our lives. They're totally separate. Yes. Uh, yes. I mean, things, I, I, right? is, that, is that kind of what you're getting at? I don't at? think, for, uh, like, the book is really meant to be, like, you know, making the emotional case for 
belief in God, period. And I just don't think we look for something outside of ourselves. We don't look for to, to the heavens until we've somewhat exhausted um, what we have right horizontally, right, right around us, inside us, whatever have you. And so I think um, it could be the hyper-individualism. It could be the sort of can-do American post-enlightenment, uh, you know, flattery of, of like that we sort of bring up kids the almost like a helicopter parenting type mindset. But I just, a lot, what I mean when I say Christianity doesn't make sense in title of a high anthropology is like if, if it's, if I do have it within myself or in my immediate context to solve my problems, to change myself, to deliver myself, to redeem myself or for others to redeem me, well then what do I need God for? Why, why would that even be appealing in the first place? But if you have a low anthropology, which says humans are limited and doubled and self-centered, well, then you can proceed from the standpoint that I really need their blind spots. I need help. And I need help not only from other people, you know, I need in relationships, community. I'm not a completely free agent or an island, but I also, ultimately, I need, such as my life, that I need help from God. I need intervention from from. Uh, a deity from something supernatural like that's a that's where christianity to my mind comes alive where, where, where it starts to become like another you know god is your coach or you know here's you and god can do this together i i think that sometimes that can be you know i guess it can sometimes it can be helpful I, I'm, I'm trying to search my mind for a context but i know that some people when we talk about relationship with god what they really mean is partnership with god and that uh, again, that can provide a person with a sense of purpose that I think can be very lacking. But ultimately, um, I want to say that uh, human beings are uh, in need of help. And uh, until you have some kind of run-in with that in your own life or in the life of those around you, the the notion of looking to God for any kind of uh, comfort, sustenance, life, uh, it will be confusing. It will be uh, irrelevant almost. This episode is brought to you in part by Beyond Ordinary Women Ministries, which prepares Christian women for leadership. At Bow, we believe that every woman is a leader because she influences someone. So, whom do you influence? Do you mentor a woman, serve in the workplace, or do you lead a small group, teach the Bible, or even lead an entire ministry? No matter who or how many you influence, our free online resources will help equip you. Our videos, podcast episodes, and articles from experienced women leaders will encourage you and perfect your leadership skills. They offer wisdom for dealing with ministry pitfalls, current biblical issues, health for your own soul, and insights for shepherding others well. In addition, BOW offers Bible studies designed to connect women of multiple generations. They provide a challenge to both women new to the Bible and those wanting to dig deeper. Be our guest and browse all of our free resources and low-cost Bible studies at beyondordinarywomen.org. You know, as you, I'm struck by the way in which your first book or your last book, Seculosity, was really helping us unpack, you know, all of the things that we turn to, right, for kind of this this sense of okayness um, and maybe low anthropology then is helping us to say, okay, given this is the reality, 
that we live in, what do we do with that? How do we begin to reimagine, you know, um, even a category like access to the divine for, for those who, for whom that, you know, wasn't where they grew up, you know, how, given the, the realities of, you know, digital distraction, the fact that our brains are getting rewired, that we are no longer able to attend or pay attention to ourselves, our place, um, people in front of us, you know, given uh, just the, you know, global rise of, of affluence here in North America. What's your hope, um, <laughs> you know, that we'll actually be able to to come to the end of ourselves? You know, maybe it's just an, an individual hope or, a, a, you know, in community hope that rather than maybe a cultural hope that we'll, we'll be in, begin to actually get and understand the, those three those three pillars of low anthropology that you mentioned. Well, I think that I I maybe I'm being sounding too optimistic here, but I think that there's a widespread sense that the way we're living now it isn't really working. Like I think that there's a whole lot of despair, and the further you get up the sort of socioeconomic ladder, the more despair you find. Um, and that should be that should teach us something, you know. That should say like this, there's something about this entire framework that I mean, life is hard enough as it is, no matter what the framework is or time of history. But uh, something about the you know what I think is I, I read somewhere like the first when people get money, the first thing they buy is their loneliness, like and by AKA their independence. So they, they, what they really don't want to be is dependent on anyone and therefore they don't really want to relate. And that, that asset has a, has a cost that they're not aware of. So I find that, uh, you know, actually like there were, there was, uh, one of the, one of the things that influenced writing this book was all of these, um, sort of secular books about like vulnerability, like Brene Brown or, um, and the, the perfectionism, like you, you're seeing a lot of us talk about burnout and perfectionism and doing it all and having it all and that, that being oppressive. And I was, I, was, I was thinking like there's a widespread sense. It's not just within the Christian world. In fact, it's, it's almost not in the Christian world enough that, uh, that we need to return to give people the permission to be human beings and that there's something about the way we're living which is actually dehumanizing. And uh, so... And I saw the popularity of those books as a, like a real signpost that maybe people were ready to re-engage with, because um, a lot of them are actually borrowing, you know, concepts from Western Christianity, and they're sort of smuggling them in and say, and 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 you know, siphoning off any kind of moral uh, morality. But there's there's a widespread sense that everyone is sort of beaten down and uh, tired and unhappy, and and we're as affluent as we've ever been, and as unhappy as we've ever, and as medicated as we've ever been, and all of these things. So I, I like to think that there's some recognition of that. It's certainly, there's been an open when I've communicated about these things, uh, people seem to be deeply open to it, and give when once you give folks the permission to uh, actually be themselves, like. You do see be beautiful acts of love and mercy occur. Um, it's usually when we're hiding and trying to assert our happiness all the time um, that things backfire. So I have hope. My hope. My I'm a Christian, so my hope and and is not in like forcibly raising our anthropology. It's like having a, a quote unquote high Christology. Like my hope is in God. I think God is the great um, force for good in the world and in our own lives. And so if a low anthropology can help get us there, if it can be a gateway into uh, an openness to the, the, the reality of God, then 
that's that would be my fondest hope for this book. The sort of secondary hope where the people could just sort of recognize themselves and and um, maybe um, bring to bear some compassion. I mean, I think that's a really helpful, obviously, <laughs> point. The point of this is is Christ, because it, even with the whole. Um, you know, embrace your vulnerability. Uh, it, it seems like the way that that has maybe played out um, is, you know, kind of cultivated vulnerability on Instagram. Uh, it, it's sort of like, you know, when Brene Brown did her first TED talk and talked about the importance of vulnerability and that, that video has been viewed millions and millions of times, but then it's sort of like, okay, but now where do we go with this? And, and if it's, if it's not <laughs> driving us to Christ, it's like, I, I don't know, maybe what we're left with is just uh, well, see, we're all a mess. Um, <laughs> and look how beautiful my mess is. That's, I hope that comes across. I had a, a person this weekend say like, I feel like you're, 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 you're saying a lot of the same things, but you're taking us further. And, um, cause I, th- I always felt that there was a real aspect of that missing. It's not okay. Like it, frankly, yes, we're all imperfect. Yes. There's, we're all messy. And uh, the result of that, as you're, I think I a hundred percent agree has been a sort of a performative vulnerability, which, which is, you know, if you have a antenna for it, it's unbelievably prevalent, prevalent and also really irritating, but <laughs> I, <Ditto>. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, curated, uh, transparency which is not transparency at all it's just a, like a different level to the game um but again the ways in which i fall short the ways in which i'm imperfect or something like that are not sometimes it's just the nature of my humanity but sometimes it has it creates damage in in other people's lives like i can i can talk to you about how i'm depressed and how i've i struggle with this my whole life and i can have your empathy and you could say you know this is true we need to be talking about these things and that's great but what about my wife and my children who've had to deal with a with a with a husband who sometimes can't get out of bed like that's not just like Oh, I'm. You know, what about them? Is there any justice, or is there any sort of like acknowledgement of the damage that our that there's these are not morally there is a weight, and I think that so our ultimate hope I would want to be is in things like reconciliation and forgiveness. So so you don't just get into the acknowledgement. Confession is not enough. Like the absolution is the key part. That said, confession is better than hiding. Like confession alone is still, I'd still prefer that to a kind of like nonstop performance. So I don't want to re- re- say these things, these other forms of, uh, you know, culturally validated vulnerability or something bad. I think it's better than the opposite, but I would also say it doesn't quite go far enough. What would you say is where, yeah, how do we, how do we kick the can further down the road? How do we keep that conversation going to go further? What are the, you know, kind of intermediary sorts of questions, even amongst our communities that we can have to go further, as you say? Well, I think that the, um, well, well, we have to talk about forgiveness. I mean, there's, um, uh, there, there are ways in which, again, the acknowledgement is 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 half the battle. It's probably more than half the battle, and truth telling is hugely important. But no one's ultimately going to tell the full truth unless they think there's a shot that they might be forgiven, and um, or that they might have a chance at clemency. So, I think the proclamation that 
God is a God of grace and that um, your uh, propensity to screw things up is not the end of the story. Um, and sort of put, put the, put, put the, put the, put the, the reins, you know, let God be God kind of thing. I, th- I think that's a way to talk about it, but, but usually, um, and honestly, when I talk to people about people are very willing to talk about vulnerability and confession and transparency, and they, they see the burden of perfection as something that's pernicious and actively, uh, you know, antagonistic to human flourishing. But, um, my whole point of this book is just saying, well, this is why we actually need more than just this. We need God. We need we need some a, a forgiving God. We need a inter- God who has power. And I mean, for myself, I believe that a, a low anthropology also kind of uh, necessitates a, a robust pneumatology. So a view of the Holy Spirit as alive and active and working in the world, often against our uh uh, desires and intentions, um, or and and sometimes in favor of them. So, just because I don't have the power, you don't have the power, doesn't mean the power doesn't exist. And uh, there is good news for those who are also deeply afraid of of ever telling the truth about themselves. So, I, I just think I encourage like to take the extra step towards forgiveness. Read the read the fourth the fifth chapter of this book um, if you can, and see where it leads. Yeah, that's great. David, I mean, what would your hope be for people who read your book? Uh, how do you actually go from, although this was an interesting perspective, to kind of embracing a low anthropology and maybe even beyond the, the individual, but what, what would it look like for a, a, a congregation, a church, a local community to embrace low anthropology? Well, my sense, uh, Bryce, of like the most transformative communities are the ones in which people are loved. And I don't think anyone's loved outside of their truth, you know, actually of the actual reality of who they are. So I always give AA as the great model of community, though I see it in churches just as frequently. I mean, not every church, but I do see it in churches, uh, place in small groups, especially where people uh, can come and with no expectation that they're uh, superhuman or even angelic, but that they're in need of God. Uh, I'm walking into this church, and by doing that today, I acknowledge that I am a person who is not God and uh, actually is in need of, of God and God's help. So I, uh, th- and I think what you see in communities like that is you see transformation, you see other-centeredness, I th- you see acts of service, humility, creativity. Like I, I tend not to ever want to define exactly how something should play out because usually when, when the Holy Spirit is involved, like, you know, you get people's like, oh, I want to do a, you know, drama class in a prison, you know, something like that. It, it's it, it, <laughs> the strangest and coolest things can occur. And um, so I would hope that uh, one of the, the the pushbacks I get about the book is just, sort of, well, if everyone is sort of flawed and, and none of us have have full access to any, to the truth or certainties, there's always an illusion that um, it doesn't, this just sound like relativism, you know, the, the 90s boogeyman that we all heard about. <laughs> and I say, I actually don't think that we're in any danger culturally or in the church of being too relativistic. Like I just, if that were the issue, then maybe we could sort of try to talk more about capital T truth and, and uh, moral standards. But my sense is that we are drowning in absolutes and certainties and 
uh, to inject a one to two percent of humility might allow us to speak with people who, you know, we think have the wrong signs in their front yard or uh, shouldn't have anything to teach us. Uh, just a one to two percent chance, and because that, but that also means like there's a one to two percent chance you might be wrong about yourself. And there are a lot of people out there who, again, think they're ter- they're they're the only one who's suffering, or that they 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 they, they condemn themselves with very very loud voices. Uh, and I, I think that a low anthropology withholds judgment because it says that you do not have access to all the facts. So I would love to see communities be more shaped, uh, more uh, a community that's shaped by humility tends to be a, a community that also is uh, focused on the needs of others. And um, that's what we, and not, not because it feels like it's earning something in order to 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 be better itself like i think it it has kind of given up on the project of self-improvement so it thinks like oh i'll just sort of let me see how i can be of use to the people my neighbors you know yeah you know help us um think through particularly i'm thinking for leaders whether you're a small group leader where you're whether you're a business owner um you know leader in your home whatever um, by which I mean you're a parent because your children <laughs> must follow you. Um, so wherever we find ourselves, um, how might we begin to inculcate this sort of on the ground level, you know, um, in our in those communities to begin to create spheres where where people are free to forgive or free to actually state their their problems, their issues. What does that look like kind of on a weekly or daily basis if you have any sort of granular ways that we can unpack this? Well, I think the the great lesson is always the sort of I'll go first um, lesson. If you're a person who's in, in quote unquote leadership, um, you are the one who's there to actually model these things. And I wish it weren't the case, but that means saying sorry to your children. <laughs> <laughs> that means apologizing to them, uh, even even not waiting for them to be to apologize. Um, I think pastors uh, also, you know, um, if you're in a situation where there's a, someone in ministry oh, and they come they, on, <laughs> <laughs> and they, uh, you know. I think it's a great rule of thumb that you never give an illustration of yourself in a sermon that's sort of like self-aggrandizing. I, I can't, I right. almost he can't. Always does. For sure. He's yeah. always, yeah. yeah. He's just full of himself, Bryce. I, I could tell. <laughs> no, no, across no, loud and clear. He, he actually, he only uses himself in a sermon illustration when it's a negative example. Yeah, yeah I, I, I figured. It's, uh, I, I think that that's really important. And so that means like we're searching for, um, not places to feel shame, but certainly places to say sorry and to, uh, you know, that means husbands with wives and wives with husbands. And that means parents with children, especially, um, you'd be amazed. I mean, as, as, as many years as I've been around, uh, working with college students or with, uh, uh, older people, it's the amount of parents, kids who've never heard their, their parents have never apologized for anything. Or they say, my dad never apologized for anything. Or they say, or the, he, the man who says, my wife has never said she's sorry about anything. And like, I don't, that's not okay. Like that, that's, that, the, the fruit of that will be corrosive um, to that whatever community surrounds that person. And so then, I mean, it doesn't mean you invent, you know, uh, uh, you know, remorse, but I think that given the reality of who we are, like there will always be something to, uh, to, to some some bridge to build 
on the basis of humility from your own end. Uh, that means there's always hope because like, if you're just stuck in, I'm waiting for him to say, sorry, he's waiting for me to say, sorry. Then like, um, where I won't say sorry till they say sorry, or I won't th- until until this church body apologizes. I'm never going to step foot inside there. It's like I, that is um, that is true, like standoff and uh, you know impasse. Uh, so I would just invite people to honestly look at like opportunities for repentance. I guess is one word. Uh, sorrow, uh, just heartfelt transparency with other people. You don't see it. You don't see, you know, like when, when, when we, how many times do so many people would talk about a celebrity or a politician is like, if they just said sorry and not in order to score points and not with a bunch of caveats or not with, I mean, I might not, I might not be ready to forgive the person. I might not vote for them or something like that, but it, I certainly wouldn't hate them more. <laughs> like, you know, <laughs> if, if they, if they came at me with a sort of a, listen, I did screw up. And I, I, there are plenty of reasons, but I'm just, those aren't even important right now. I know that I hurt people and all I can say is I'm sorry. Again, you might not believe it, but I guarantee you it won't make, it won't make people, uh, it won't offend people more deeply. Mm, that's really good. Well, thank you for your good thinking. Thank you for your book, Glow Anthropology. And thank you for continuing to help us think less of ourselves so we can think more of Jesus. We appreciate oh. your time here, David. Thank you, Ashley. Thank you, Bryce. Appreciate it. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for joining us. The Cartographers is hosted by Bryce Hales and Ashley Hales. It is edited by Nathan Michelle. The Cartographers is a production of Willowbray Institute. Find out more at willowbray.org. This episode was brought to you in part by the Enneagram and Marriage Podcast, an outreach dedicated to bringing joy, strength, intimacy, and purpose to couples seeking growth. Be sure to visit enneagramandmarriage.com to find your chemistry together again, or for the very first time.